We are, uh, we're ending off our series we're calling Kingdom and Culture this week, where we have been exploring what it means for us as followers of Jesus, as, as citizens of the kingdom of God, to live in the midst of Canadian culture, where there are going to be times where the culture of the kingdom, the, the values and the way of life of Christ, are going to, to rub up against the way of the culture around us. There are going to be ways where we see some overlap, Ways where, in the words of Jesus, we can look at things in our culture and say the kingdom of God is near. But we're working off these two basic definitions of kingdom and culture where we say the kingdom is where God is present and where life is lived his way. And our culture is the way we do things around here. And we've explored all kinds of fun topics throughout this series where we've looked at things like identity and sex and gender and human goodness and cancel culture and the value of women. Last week we looked at the value of human life. This week we're going to be looking at the topic of wealth. So I want to be very purposeful this morning to be reminding you of the offering and everything before the sermon because I don't want you to feel this weird, like, I am trying to guilt you into giving this morning or anything like that uh, before we go into that. So this is a bit of my disclaimer. We are in a, a cultural moment where our relationship towards money and wealth is, is complicated. There's, there's a, an increasing kind of disenfranchisement that younger people especially feel with kind of the state of the economy and with the price of housing and everything continuing to rise, there are many young people who feel uh, disillusioned by the idea of, of building any kind of wealth uh, in our society. We see kind of the, the modern slogan, eat the rich, uh, which is continuing to, to prop up, uh, especially among younger generations or those who uh, are seeing the continued rise of the wealth of the wealthy and the decrease of the, the share of wealth that, uh, that those in lower socioeconomic classes have. The, the chart on the right here actually shows kind of between the 80s and now the rise of the wealth, the red line of the 1% and their share of global wealth. And the blue line is the share of global wealth, or this is in the US, but global charts are similar, of the wealth of the bottom 50%. Of people, So there is this continued consolidation of wealth among the most wealthy that we see globally and a decrease uh, with those who uh, have less. This, this disillusionment with the fact that the rich seem to get richer and the poor seem to get poor. Uh, there was an article in Forbes uh, uh, magazine uh, back in April that was talking about kind of the economic... Uh, impact of the pandemic. And this is uh, predominantly in, in the U.S. where this is talking about, where it quoted the U.S. president who said that 20 million Americans lost their jobs in the pandemic, Joe Biden remarked uh, in his address to Congress. At the same time, r roughly 650 billionaires in America saw their net worth increase by more than a trillion dollars. And now those billionaires are worth more than four trillion, where we're seeing that the economic impacts are disproportionately affecting those who are uh, of lower class, of, of lower earning jobs. 
in, on one hand, we're seeing this kind of, we revere billionaires and see them as celebrities and people to aspire to. You know, there's, there's you know, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are people that many people aspire to be like. And at the same time, there are many who see these figures as, as immoral because of the wealth that they have. We see billionaires shooting themselves up in rockets into space when many of us have not been able to travel out of the province in the last year and a half. Even in conversations with my mom, who is, uh, she is on the horizon of retirement at this point, in her discussions with her union, they're, they're saying that the average income in Canada has actually increased because the, the jobs lost throughout the pandemic have predominantly been low-earning jobs. And so what looks on paper like the, the, the wages that people are making are increasing is actually because the data is different because the, all these lower-earning jobs are, are just not there. Gen Z, the generation of kind of 1996 and onward, they are seeing this kind of economic discouragement, but what we see in this generation culturally is, is kind of an uptick in, in financial savviness, which maybe my generation or the generation before me maybe didn't have, where we longed to have the things that our parents had right away and went into extreme debt because of it. We're seeing younger generations starting to embrace some, some more uh, uh, adventurous financial, um, financial strategies. We're seeing this rise of TikTok influencers who are, who are giving financial advice. Like this is, this is a, a huge thing right now where on this app that is predominantly used by people 26 and under, that a, a major portion of it is being used by people kind of in these short sound bites giving financial advice. And this is how to invest, and this is how you save, and this is how you can you know, do these deals in ways where you are going to get financially ahead. Culturally, we're kind of all over the place in our view of wealth. And as a whole, most of us, when we look at wealth, we look at it to provide things for us, things like security where we want to be able to have a, a, a warm place to stay and a dry roof over our head, especially with the weather that's coming. We look to our wealth to provide a, a sense of personal worth, of, of our own self-esteem and identity is built up in, in how much we make. And our value in the eyes of many comes from the number on our T4. In, in our culture, wealth is often linked to power. And the, the wealthier you are, the more influence and impact you have on other people, and the decisions you make will affect others. The fact that Elon Musk can make a tweet and the value of a particular cryptocurrency goes through the roof and people become millionaires overnight is crazy. We look to wealth to provide independence so that we're not dependent on our parents or others, that we have a sense of self-agency. And we look on wealth to provide pleasure, to provide those things in life that, that, that give us a sense of, of meaning and excitement. But because we rely on wealth to provide so much of these things in our lives, money has this disproportionate, anxious effect in our lives. 
Because so much of these things rely on our wealth and our money. Money is a thing that is going to make us anxious. Whether we have so much of it and we're constantly trying to acquire more, or whether we find ourselves short and we are anxious over needing to get what we need to get by. Half of divorces reported in 2021 said that at least one of the reasons why they separated was the stress of their finances. So what does Jesus have to say about money? What's what's Jesus' perspective? What's the kingdom way in talking about wealth? And how might that rub up against the way of our culture? First of all, we need to acknowledge that ancient Israel and first century Palestine were not the kind of modern capitalist societies that we live in. And so there's not going to be this one-to-one correlation of, well, we just need to do what the ancient Jews did with their money and we're going to be well off. Or the way that that things were handled in the times of Jesus is what we need to go back to. No, that's not how it works. But the human heart is the same as it was then. And Jesus says much about wealth and its effect on the human heart. And I think that is the area that we can deeply learn from Jesus. Jesus, in his famous Sermon on the Mount that we read in, in Matthew 5 through 7, He presents us with a crossroads. A crossroads where you and I need to make a decision about the role of money and wealth in our life. We're going to spend some time in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Most of our time this morning is going to be there. Uh, If you have a Bible or a Bible app with you, you can turn to Matthew 6. It's going to be up on the screen behind me here. Starting Matthew 6, verses 19 and onward. Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and worms and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Obviously, Jesus had not heard of cryptocurrency at this point. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I thought that was a good joke. That fell flat. My goodness. Anyway, back to the Bible. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is confronting us with this decision of, are we going to use our lives to store up the treasures of earth or treasures in heaven? Now this isn't necessarily a, are you going to... Uh, reap rewards now versus rewards later when you die. But it's more of a difference rather than timeline of quality. Are the things that we're pursuing, the things that will bring us value and esteem and worth in the world's eyes, or things that are treasures of heaven? Things that in the eyes of our God are the things that are meaningful and valuable and worthwhile. He says to pursue these earthly valuables is is ultimately valueless because they are temporary. You know, we can live much of our lives pursuing having having the the next best thing, whether it is the the newest version of the iPhone that comes out, or the the thrill of acquiring the, the, the new vehicle, or dressing the best, or having the best investment portfolio. 
But ultimately, all of these things are temporary. Where our cars, particularly where we live, will rust. And our clothes will wear out. And the money will get spent. The question is, is is our life going to be spent accumulating the stuff that is valued by those around us or investing in things that are eternal? He says, for where your treasure is, what it is that you pursue, that's where your heart will be also. What you pursue is ultimately going to be what you love. What you are chasing after is going to shape your heart and you will be the kind of person that pursues these things. It is a way where your heart and life is formed. Jesus elaborates. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now that sounds like some weird riddly stuff. But ultimately what Jesus is saying is here is where your eyes are focused, the rest of your life is going to be shaped by that. And so if where our eyes are set is on pursuing wealth, our, the rest of our lives, the rest of who we are is going to be shaped by that. If we are pursuing light, then our lives are going to be shaped towards light. If we are pursuing things of darkness, then our lives are going to be shaped in that way. Then he gets more specific in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is a strong confrontation. This is, this is Jesus setting it up before us, saying you have to choose. We either choose to pursue wealth as our God or to pursue our Creator as our God. It can't be both and. You and I have one throne on our heart, and it's either God's place or someone else's place. There's no like half seas where each tries to get one bum cheek on the chair. Like it's either God or something else. Jesus continues these strong words in Matthew 19, where in encountering the rich young ruler, right, who says, What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, this rich man, he says, Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man turns away sad. And Jesus says to his disciples after this, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This isn't talking about, in, in the ways that sometimes we've, we've thought about it, like dying and going to heaven. When we talk about entering the kingdom of God, isn't isn't necessarily about at the point when you die and getting getting to go to the the happy afterlife place. But Jesus in his invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven is an invitation like we've been talking about 
to enter the kind of life with God, working with Him, that leads to eternity. So you and I participate in the kingdom of God right now by being in relationship with God and being about the work of God. Both now and for eternity. Jesus is saying here, how hard would it be for someone who has an incredible amount of wealth to actually participate in the things of God, in the way of God, because for so long their life has been shaped around the accumulation of wealth. How hard would it be to make a 180-degree turn where I've been pursuing one thing as my God my whole life and then to switch and turn to now God is my king? The disciples say, it's impossible then. Who is able to, to enter the kingdom? Jesus offers some hope with how he responds. He says, nothing's impossible with God. But these words should hit us heavy, particularly as those who we fit well into the the top third of those of wealth globally. That it takes a miracle for those of us who have spent our lives trying to accumulate wealth to be people who are about the kingdom of God. It is a cultural, spiritual heart shift that is miraculous when it happens. We live in a culture commercially driven, pursuing things for value. And Jesus needs to do a miracle in our hearts for us to be people about the kingdom rather than about wealth. It is literally a countercultural decision, meaning we're going to value things differently means we're going to make decisions where others will look at us and say, you missed an opportunity there. It means we're going to be okay with not keeping up with the Joneses, with not having the latest thing, with having a a four-generation-old iPad, and that's okay. Jesus continues in Matthew 6. He says, therefore, this is important, the therefore, you always have to ask where, why it's, what it's there for. That's a trick for you. This is Jesus' in light of this. I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here tomorrow and is is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink 
or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If you have been around church for any amount of time, you have probably read and heard this passage a million and one times. And you can probably roll your eyes at it and say, yes, I know this passage is the seek first the kingdom thing and all of that. I want us to be hit by this passage this morning. To let Jesus' words hit us in the deepest parts. Because if we are to have a kingdom perspective about money, it means that money doesn't need to hold that anxious place in our life. It doesn't need to be that that stress-inducing thing that destroys marriages, that keeps us up late, that makes us worry and break out and all those kinds of things. But that is a lot easier said than done. It's really easy for me to stand up here and say, don't worry about money, guys. But I know that many of us are struggling to be able to make ends meet, that as Christmas comes up, we are stressing about how we're going to pay for gifts. As the weather gets colder, we know that oil tanks need to be filled up. This is easier said than done. And there is a lot of grace here for us. I want us in reading this passage to not see God as mad at us for the times where we do worry and are anxious about money. He is is gracious towards us in this. But take this passage as, as a reminder of why we don't need to worry. Reasons why we don't need to worry. There are several in here. First of all, think about this. God looks after silly birds. Like he makes sure that they have enough to eat. He created them in a way where where he is their provider. They're not storing up stuff in the pantry and in the basement. They're not scanning through the flyers looking for deals so that they can store things up for the winter. They trust God to provide for them. And Jesus here says that Listen, if the birds don't have to worry, you don't either. Because if your father looks after the birds, how much more is your father going to look after you? Jesus says that God makes the flowers beautiful. right? And, we're, and when we are worried about the, the clothing on our backs and having enough to be able to, you know, to have warm clothing in the winter, to provide shelter from the elements with warm jackets and mitts and those kinds of things. If we're worried about everything I have looks terrible and all of those things, we need to remember that God has made the flowers beautiful. Flowers which, they don't last very long. You could, you could draw the same comparison of, of think of the, the beautiful trees in the fall. And God's beautiful, artistic way of glorifying himself in the beauty 
of the leaves which by now are mostly on the ground. How much more is your Father going to care for you? Another reason in this passage why we're not to worry is it says that the pagans seek after these things. Meaning the people who don't know and trust God are all worried about this. But our Father knows that we need them. We live in a culture of, of many people who are anxious about these things, and rightly so when we don't have the grounding knowledge that our Father is going to take care of us. Our Father knows that we need these things. And so Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Let me paraphrase it in less religious words. If your life is instead focused on joining God in what He's doing in the world, He's going to look after you. And all these things, all these things sound super easy to say, but this has been something that I've needed to hear this week. As I've been working through this passage and preparing this sermon, and as we're in a stage of life as a family where kid number three's on the way, Christmas is coming, had to replace a vehicle, there has been a lot of time where I have been an anxious person. And where I have tried to kind of seek after these things in my own way and solve all my problems and have allowed my own anxiety to get a hold of me in the midst of this. And I have needed this passage this week. I've needed Jesus' gentle reminder that my Father is going to look after me. And I need to be reminded that He has. He has looked after me in the past. He is looking after me now, and He will into the future. Let me just brag on God a little bit, where we, uh, we're having a third kid, our vehicle is too small, and it wasn't going to pass inspection, and we're like, okay, we need a van. We're in that stage, right? And so we, we put together this, like, wish list of what we would love for a van, of, like, we would love a Toyota Sienna that has, you know, under this number of kilometers you know, that isn't totally rusted out and all these things. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we were able to find one that, you know, we could, with some deep prayer, afford. But even last night, as I was kind of sorting through some stuff on my, my iPad, I came across the list that Haley and I had done up of, like, this is our wish list. And seeing, like, every single thing on that checklist was, was checked off. And I'm not trying to say that every single thing that we want, we're going to get. But for me, it was a moment of, of being reminded that, that my father's looking out for me. And even when things financially feel tight, and even when I'm worried about having a third kid and all that stuff in Christmas time, 
my Father sees what I need, and He cares for me. We see this kingdom view of wealth played out in how the early church lived their lives. It wasn't just some great teaching that Jesus had, but we see this start to integrate into the lives of the early believers. And there are three main areas that that I think we see in them and that we also need to adopt as we seek to live out what we believe about wealth. These three things are humility, generosity, and watchfulness. Here's what I mean by humility. I've got three passages from the early church. The first one comes from Paul's uh, letter to Timothy, his first one, where he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, he is very much echoing the teachings of Jesus here and, and instructing Timothy, let this be part of the culture of the church that you're leading. But this is an important reminder that God is the provider, right? So even for those of us who, we might be pretty happy with how much money we're making. And we look at the T4 at the end of the year and we're like, it's been a great year that way. To not let that become something where we say, look how great I am providing for myself and for my family. But to have the humility to say that every good and perfect gift is from God. What I receive, the money I make, the way I'm able to provide and put food on the table for my family is God's provision through me. It is God's money, not my money. And if that's the case, then that means we should regularly have this heart of thankfulness towards God for the fact that that He is providing, whether that's through a job or through other means. It also means that we don't place our identity and our value and our status in the number on our T4. That we are not seen as greater or less than because of however much we do or don't make. Having a level of humility about our money, which is truly God's money that he provides for us, means that God is going to ask us to do things with his money that he gives us that we wouldn't maybe naturally want to do with it. Which leads to the second point of generosity. We see in the early church that all believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. If all we have is a gift from God, then God is going to use what he provides for us to be able to provide for others as well. When we pray for God to provide for someone, often that is through us. God's provision is often to people through his people. Which is why I love things like the kits of kindness where I am seeing God provide for these families through the generosity of his people. Things like the the Benevolent Fund, or our Community Care Fund, we changed the name of it, where God is providing for people 
through the generosity of others. This level of generosity also means that that we are responsible to use what God has given us in ways that honor Him, in wise ways, and to to not use generosity as a status builder either. I think of the parable that Jesus taught of of the talents, where there's a a rich man who gives his his, uh, servants an amount of money, and he says, I'm going to be gone for a while. Use this money wisely. And there's one guy who he invests it and makes a tenfold return. Another guy who invests it, you know, he makes less of a return. And another guy who he's like, I don't want to lose it, so I'll bury it in the ground. And the, the... the boss comes back and he, he condemns the one who just buried what he was given in the ground. That there are wise ways we're meant to use what's given to us so that we can be generous and so that God can provide through us. Generosity is also a spiritual discipline. And here's what I mean by this. In giving, I am releasing the hold that I have on God's money. Whereas my heart tends towards greed and hoarding and making sure that I have what I want, the spiritual discipline of giving is a way of training my heart to be a generous heart rather than a greedy heart. And so the act of regularly giving, whether that is to a local church or whether that is to charitable organizations, that is a way where we are training ourselves not to be people who hoard what we have, not to be people who are shaped more by the culture of building wealth for our own gain, but it is training our hearts to be generous. If you want to be a generous person, than be someone who learns how to give. Last thing, watchfulness. James, the brother of Jesus, writes uh, to the church, he says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. He goes on to say that when someone comes into your gathering, And they're very clearly a rich person. You can tell by their clothes and what they're wearing and their jewelry and things like that. He says, don't give them the best seat in the house. Don't honor them more than someone who comes in where you can tell that they are economically depressed. Don't tell the poor to give up their seats so that the rich can sit. Don't give the rich positions of influence just because of their wealth. We need to be watchful in our practices around wealth and in James' case, around favoritism with wealth. Because otherwise we are slipping more into the cultural narrative than the way of the kingdom. We need to be constantly watchful about our practices that way. Because we're constantly bombarded with a message of handling wealth and seeing value in wealth in the way of the world. So for us in the way of the kingdom, we need to be watchful to to constantly resist 
the, the constant commercialism of the culture we live in. We need to be watchful that we don't, we don't get sucked into just what everyone else is doing with money. We need to be watchful. Man, like, if we can't afford to celebrate Christmas the way that other people are celebrating Christmas, maybe we're not actually celebrating Christmas. By putting ourselves in precarious financial situations because we want to be able to give like other people give. We can be watchful by reminding ourselves of God's past provision. We need to guard our hearts against falling into the belief that money will buy us happiness and that those who are wealthy are the people that we should be modeling our lives after. Ultimately, I, I want to land on this. You might be the richest or the poorest person in this room, but ultimately in Christ, the wealth that you have is the same because our great inheritance comes from him. He is going to provide for you either way. And this morning you may need to hear the words of, of don't worry and God's going to provide for you. And maybe this morning you're going to hear the words of you need to be careful about the value of wealth in your life. And you might need to consider being a more generous person. But ultimately, our value and the wealth of our identity is found in Christ, who gave his life for us, who sits on the throne of heaven and gives everything that he has to us. Our wealth and our value is found in him. And my prayer as people of the kingdom is that that's where our identity lies rather than in any other cultural conversations around money. Let's pray. God, you know our hearts. You know where we are on this issue. Personally, in our families, you know the financial stressors and the financial temptations. You know the sway of wealth in our life. And I pray, God, that you would be working even this morning by your Spirit in our hearts to shape us into people who who choose to worship God and not money. Would you take the place in the throne of our hearts rather than the pull of wealth? Help us to trust your provision. Help us not to fall into placing our value in other things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing with us.